following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. When our daughter Sarah was uh, in the third grade, she came home from school one day and she says, I'm glad I don't live in Sweden. Now why in the world would a third grader come home and say, I'm glad I don't live in Sweden? I said, well, sweetie, why are you glad you don't live in Sweden? Because in Sweden, parents are not allowed to spank their children. This was an amazing insight. This little girl did not like spankings. But she had learned something very important through that process. That the spankings were given to her in a context of love. The spankings were for her good. And that was an important lesson for her to remember. And I hope that all you boys and girls know that. You don't like spankings, I'm sure. You'd be very strange if you did. But uh, when your parents spank you, you know it is because they love you. They're doing this to help you to deal with the sinful and wrong patterns in your life and to help you grow in conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has a parallel for us, an analogy of the truth of our text that is before us this morning. And that is that just as an earthly father or mother must discipline their children because they love them and want their good, our Heavenly Father does the same for us. We come to this last section of Eliphaz's first speech that reminds you of, of what he has said to Job. He begins in, in chapter 4 assuming two things, that Job uh, is a hypocrite and has sinned grievously. And so that is how he approaches Job. He then reminds Job and all of us that no man, no woman, no boy or girl in any way can be righteous before God, that God is infinitely transcendent uh, and holy. Now, in chapter 5, as we saw last week, he begins pointedly to apply to Job um, uh, these truths and calling him basically to repentance. So last week we saw that, that Eliphaz calls Job to do two things, to quit fighting a back against God because envy and anger destroy a person. And uh, even though they might prosper for a period of time, God would eventually come forth against them in wrath. And then he says, but rather seek God. And he really gives us a remarkable description of, of the Lord God of, in his might, in his power, of, of his providence. All great encouragements to us to, uh, to seek God. And having called Job then to repent and to seek God, he now turns in this last section to address the work of God in discipline us as children. Now we're going to see that almost everything that he says here is true and is repeated in the rest of Scripture, even as uh, Hebrews quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. You see how similar that language is to what Eliphaz says. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Later, in Psalm 94, we hear the same truth. Blessed is the man whom thou dost chasten, O Lord, and dost teach out of thy law. 
And of course, the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 that we've just read repeats this glorious truth. The discipline comes from the hand of a loving father. Now, as we'll see, Eliphaz's problem was not in what he believed about God's discipline, but how he then would apply that to Job. But what I do want to show you here is that we're joyfully to submit to God's afflictions, knowing that in them, God blesses us, helps us, and delivers us. We're joyfully to submit to God's afflictions, to his trials, knowing that in them, he will bless us, he will help us, he will deliver us. I want to show you three things from these verses. A call to submission, the grounds for submission, and including exhortation to submission. Well, the call to submission is given by Eliphaz in verse 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Notice the way in which he begins this section with this, this call to pay attention. So but by saying behold, he in a sense is directing Job's attention the way a parent will take the, the face of a little one saying, now that look at me as, as they're saying something very important to them. But with behold, God is saying, now listen carefully to what I'm saying. He says that to Job, but the Holy Spirit is saying that this morning to you and me. And he makes this declaration, how happy is the man whom God reproves. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. The word translated here, how happy, is the same word translated in Psalm 1, verse 1, how blessed, or in Psalm 119, how blessed. Um, it is a word that always in the Hebrew is in what we would call the plural or dual form. It's a word that always speaks then of this fountain of God's blessing that is, is overflowing. That our cups overflow with the blessings of God. And in the blessings of God is the only place that true happiness is going to be found. But true happiness indeed is there for all of us who are the children of God. Now the blessing here is found in the fact that God Almighty is chastening reproving, instructing his children. The word that he uses here for God, the name of God, is the typical word that is used in the patriarchal period, Almighty. Sometimes the name God is put with it. It's how God entered into the second uh, part of the covenant of grace with Abraham. He said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. God Almighty is the God of the impossible. So in chapter 18 of Genesis, when Sarah is laughing at the prospect of an old barren woman having a child, remember that challenge? Nothing is impossible for God, for God Almighty. That is promise run straight through Scripture. Extraordinary times. It's the same word he mentions to the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1. So God in his greatness, uh, the same word is used throughout Revelation, uh, God Almighty. This God in his greatness is coming to us with reproof and discipline with admonition and instruction. And particularly here, it is admonition and instruction that comes to us through acts of discipline. Not dissimilar to what Paul would say to parents in Ephesians chapter 6, to bring your children up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Simply the words are reversed. Now we know that is above all to be verbal, but it must always be accompanied uh, with the corporal or bodily discipline as well. So he's saying that 
the person whom God blesses, who God Almighty blesses, um, uh, disciplines is greatly being blessed by God, and thus the call to submit. So you see, he calls out when he says, happy is the man, do not despise. Uh, the word it means to refuse, to push back against, to resent. In fact, I think that, that Eliphaz is actually using a figure of speech where the negative is used in order to emphasize the positive. You think about Paul when he says that he was a citizen of no small city. That was his way of saying, I'm a citizen of a great city of uh, uh, Tarshish. And so, don't refuse it, but in fact, rejoice in it. Does that not remind you then of what James will uh, say uh, to us in James uh, chapter 1, that uh, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall uh, into the affliction of the various trials of the Lord. And so, here is this call to us to submit, not to despise, not to refuse, and, and one of the ways that we despise the chastening of the Lord is when those words tumble out of our mouths, I don't deserve this, this isn't fair, or murmuring and complaining, uh, oh, woe am I, and things are so terrible, and all we're doing is in the same way a child cries out in anger against a parent, when the parent disciplines the child, we are crying out in anger, now, you maybe don't think you're crying out in anger, but you're refusing, you're pushing back against the correcting hand of God Almighty. Now, we'll learn later in Scripture that it's the love of a father for his children. But the principle is true here. Do not despise. Do not push back. Do not murmur and complain. You think how often in Scripture, murmuring and complaining, when the children of Israel, when our, our fathers were in the wilderness, that is the number one sin uh, for which they were punished. Uh, even as we uh, sang here in Psalm uh, 95, they murmured and, and they complained. They resisted the ways of God. And so we're, we're being called here to submit to the chastening of God in the trials and afflictions of our lives. Now, we can see that Eliphaz is thinking about Job when he says this, but the Spirit is directing it to each of us as we sit here this morning. But when we hear this, submit to the Lord and do so in joy, count it all joy when you encounter these various trials, that, that is difficult. And so, Eliphaz goes on to give us the grounds of this submission. In verses 18 and 19, he begins with these general statements, for he inflicts pain and he gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. From six troubles he will deliver you, even in seven evil will not touch you. Now, in these two general grounds for uh, are enabling us to Submit joyfully to God's affliction. In the first place, he's promising that God will always restore. That they are recuperative. They are to be remedial. They're to be healing. And so he, he uses the figure of a surgeon. He inflicts pain, but he gives relief. And literally, it's, he binds up. Think of a surgeon having at times to 
open up a wound and, and to remove uh, uh, putrid or dead or decaying skin in that wound, and, and he cleans it out, and it's a painful experience, but then he binds it up. Or he, he wounds with his surgical scalpel, and he has to remove dangerous growth from your body, but he heals. You see, when God wounds, when God hurts, when God digs, when God commits exercises surgery, it is always to the end of healing. That's the first way that the Spirit wants you to look at your trials. They're always recuperative. They're always designed to be God by God to be restorative. Now, the second general ground for submitting to submission is that God will always deliver us from evil. Now, you hear those words and your mind might boggle, verse 19, from six troubles, he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. Now, the numbers six and seven are not used here with precision. It's a, it's a Hebrew way. You'll see it, for example, in Proverbs chapter six. I'm really speaking about an indefinite number. In six, yes, even in seven. But the the word that's quite remarkable is that regardless of this multitude, an infinite number of these trials and afflictions, evil will not touch you. No, wait a minute. I have cancer. I have a chronic illness. I've had an unfaithful spouse. I've lost a child. I've lost my job. What do you mean that evil will not touch us? It's a beautiful thing, my friend. Because we're in Christ, he's not saying harm doesn't come to us, but he's saying the stinger, the stinger has been taken out of anything. For God never exercises judgment against us. The psalmist says the same thing in Psalm 91.10. No evil will befall you, nor will plague come near your tent. So, so what he's saying is, is that uh, all the things that happened to us have had the the anger, so to speak, the judicial wrath of God removed, the stinger, and thus they've all come to us for this purpose of restoration and of healing. You might not see it. And it, it is very grievous in the time of suffering. But I want you to understand that because of the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ, all evil, all retributive justice, all uh, judicial punishment, it's been taken out of whatever you suffer. No evil can come upon you in whatever affliction it is. God wants you to believe this. He then moves from these general statements to give us very bold and specific statements in verses 20 to 23. Uh, in famine, he will redeem you from death. In war, from the power of the sword will be hidden from the scourge, the slander and gossip of the tongue. You'll not be afraid of violence when it comes. You'll laugh at violence and famine. You'll not be afraid of wild beasts, for you will be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. Now, these particular evils, these afflictions, they come into the lives of God's people. 
he is declaring that the, the sting or the evil is removed from them, so we need not fear them. In fact, he says you can laugh at them. Now, he's not saying that we're to be uh, insensible and that we can have this senseless mirth uh, in the midst of, of these trials. But, but this laughing is, is an acquiescing. It's, it's a joy in the Lord for what he's doing in your life. Now, all of these things that he says here are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture very specifically. Just consider this, Psalm 33, 37, 19. I've been young, now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. War. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. Slander. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter. From the strife of tongues, Psalm 31. Pestilence and destruction. Of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of destruction that lays waste at noon, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. Psalm 91. Wild beast, you'll tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample down. Psalm 91, 13. So... What we have here is this general promise of how God protects his people in the trials and afflictions that enter uh, their lives. This is why the laughing is that we can boast in our trials and can say with the Apostle Paul, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come Height or death, life or death can separate us. Any other thing separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is what God is saying to us here is that, yes, you're going to go through these trials and afflictions. The evil has been removed and they will not be the end of you. There will often be deliverance in this life. But there will be eternal deliverance either at death or when Christ returns. And then he moves to the positive part of the blessings of God. Domestically, in verses 24 to 26, you will know, in verse 24, your tent is secure, and you will visit your abode and fear no loss. Now, tent is used here for homestead, for most of the men in that day would have lived in tents or, or tabernacles. And um, it's simply that you will dwell in safety. And in such a safety, he says, that uh, you'll visit your abode and fear no loss. Uh, when I read this, I thought about the, um, the promise to the children of Israel when they would go up to, to the feast three times a year. And God promised that when they left their families behind and they left their livestock behind, that God would protect them and, and they would have no loss. Or even when the tribes of, uh, of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe Manasseh when their family stayed in the land across the Jordan, as they went in to fight for the other possession, God protected them. That is this general pattern of God with respect to our estates. And then there's the pattern with respect to our children. And so he, he says that 
you will also know that your descendants, your seed will be many, and your offspring as the grass of the earth. So he promises these domestic blessings in home, and this is reflective of actually we'll hear about tonight from Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat the fruit of your hand, you'll be happy. It'll be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, how do you do that? May you see your children's children. So here's this promise again. The man who fears God, the man who then is being disciplined by God, though he will suffer great pain and problems. Evil has been removed. In fact, there's a positive blessing uh, for those whom God blesses in his trials. And then he brings it to death itself. But um, before we deal with death, look at the grounds of now these promises, both of deliverance and of positive blessing. In verse 23, you will be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. Uh, stones are put negatively here, probably for stones in the road as, as one would travel, or stones in the field as one would uh, try to farm. And they would be an encumbrance. They'd be a cause of danger. And, of course, we recognize uh, the, uh, the, the attack, much more so in, in Job's day, the danger uh, from uh, wild beast. But... Uh, there's going to be a league with the stones, and the beast will be at peace with you. And the word translated league here is the word covenant. So what God is saying to us as he chastens us, as he delivers us, as he positively blesses us, this is happening because of the covenant of grace. Ezekiel 34, I'll make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness, sleep in the woods, and I'll make them in places around my hill a blessing. And then Hosea relates it even more clearly to God's covenant dealings. In Hosea 2.18, In that day, the day of the Messiah, I will also make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and make them lie down in safety. Now these are the great promises of the new covenant. At the end of the day, they're eschatological. They have to do with the, the final end of the church, though many like me believe that we also will see even a greater fulfillment of these in our day. But we recognize that in our lives, whatever God brings out of our trials, whatever help, whatever blessing he brings to us, he's doing so because we are in covenant with him, thus he's made us in covenant with his Creation. Now, all that leads to this last matter, and that is death itself. In verse 26, you will come to the grave in full vigor, like the stacking of grain in its season. Uh, words uh, anticipating or reminiscent of what we read about Abraham in Genesis 25. He breathed his last and died in ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life. He was gathered to his people. So here again, in the ideal... Uh, Eliphaz, I believe the spirit through Eliphaz is picturing for us the death of a, of a righteous man or a righteous woman. They live a full life, a, a productive life. The stacking of grain has to do with fruitfulness and usefulness and, and uh, uh, prosperity in the culture. Not necessarily wealth, but usefulness. 
And this indeed is the pattern again of how God deals with his people. That as we seek to live by grace, we'll die well. Perkins said, if you want to die well, live well. And we, as we live well, as we seek to live for God's glory, then we know that we will die for God's glory. And this will be true of us. Now, we recognize of great godly men like Calvin or John Murray McShane, who died as young men. McShane only in his 30s, Calvin in his 50s. We also recognize, we have it here in our own fellowship of, of those who have um, had babies die in the womb or, or shortly after birth. And that's the exception. It does not in any way disprove what is being said here. In fact, it enforces it because when God takes even a child, even a baby, he's simply saying, I've plucked this one now for myself in heaven. As he says to Jeroboam, when the one child died, in this one, I found something good. Well, he put it there. That's why he found something good in that child. Or you think of, of a man like Robert Murray McShane. He just was ready to be harvested. He was so holy. He was, he was like an Enoch. He'd outlived his time. That doesn't mean that always that God takes the most godly in, in the midst of life. He sometimes leaves the, the most godly for a long life, as is described here. But it is all according to his glorious purposes. It reminded me of a question in our larger catechism. That's a very important question for us to think about. Um, death, 85, death being the wages of sin, why are not the righteous delivered from death, seeing all their lives are forgiven in Christ? The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day, even in death, and even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it, so that although they die, it's out of God's love, to free them perfectly from sin and misery, to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. And that's why we die. That's why some die young, some very young. Most of us, though, will live long lives to God's glory as it's promised in the, the uh, promise of the fifth commandment, larger catechism 133. What is annexed, the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? The reason annexed to the fifth commandment in these words, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, is an express promise of long life and prosperity. As far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good, to all such as keep this commandment. So again, it's a general promise. A general promise is attached to God's glory and our good. But it is the promise that even through our trials and chastenings, God is simply pruning, shaping to make us more fruitful and to bring us to that day when we can, can die confidently in Christ Jesus. So we see the call to submit We've seen some of the grounds given to us why we should submit that our trials are restorative and God will, in the end of the day, deliver us from those trials. He will bless us in our families, in our estates, in our children. He'll bless us even unto death. So it brings us to the concluding exhortation to submit in verse 27. Behold, this we have investigated, and so it is. Hear it and know for yourself. We have here a remarkable piece of, uh, really, of, of literature. You notice that within this uh, paragraph, uh, you've got um, 
an artistic, what's called an inclusio. So verse 17 begins with the call, behold, and verse 27, uh, behold. But then the whole chapter itself is a larger uh, kind of book in piece of literature in this exhortation. So uh, verse 1, call now, is there anyone who will answer you to which the holy ones will return? And 25, behold this, we have investigated. And so it is, hear it and know for yourself. So Eliphaz here, as, as he began the exhortation, concludes it with a, a call to Christian experience. Now you remember, they had no scripture in these days. They had visions such as the one Eliphaz recorded. They would have the oral revelation that came from uh, Noah uh, right down to the generation of these wise and godly men who lived uh, in, um, in the East. And within the godly community, there was a common Christian experience that one's conscience could testify to, to the reality of what Eliphaz has said. And, and so he says, now, Job, pay attention. And it's very important. And I hope today your conscience testifies to the reality of what God is saying here. That he does discipline for our good. The discipline shall heal. This will be delivered from, from these trials. At times in this life, and at the end of the day, from all of them. And so just as Eliphaz says to Job, the Spirit says to each one of you today, hear it. Know it for yourself. Don't just know it by what somebody else has said. Don't just know it by the fact that you read it in Scripture. But know it in your own experience. May your heart be able today to say in all of your trials, and all of your difficulties in chastening, uh, it's the Lord. Let him do what's good in his sight. Uh, because the experience of the saints, now not just a very limited experience, but now we have 6,000 years of the experience of the saints. I love that, and one of the reasons I chose Psalm 66 is that remarkable part there where he's talking about the great wonders of God. And remember, he, he talks about the destruction of the enemies at the Red Sea. Then he says, come, let us stand. See, God wants you to experience, understand that everything that happened to your fathers for 6,000 years, both in scriptural history and all history since then, is part of your life, part of your experience. And, and you are to enter into it, and you are to learn from it, and you are to praise God from it. And then he concludes in the psalm, come, let me tell you all the good that God's done for me. We continue then to share our experience. It's very important that you parents continue to, to relate to your children experientially, that you share it with them out of Christian experience. You, you know how they love stories. You tell them the stories of God in your life, the things that he's done, and relate everything back to the beauty and glory and sovereignty and majesty of God. So we're called to submit joyfully to the trials and afflictions of our lives, knowing that God will bless us in them and help us through them and deliver us from them. Now, almost everything, really everything, Eliphaz says is true. And I've shown you that by showing the other passages of Scripture. But you see, he has one great mistake. He is assuming that... Uh, Job is in this situation, remember how he started, because he's a hypocrite and a gross sinner. 
So what he's saying is, if you will quit fighting against God, if you will seek God, then he is going to do all these things in your life. And he wrongly applied this to Job. Doesn't take away from the wisdom of what he says to us about chastening. But we must beware of his errors. Three things in particular then that I would alert you to so that we can learn from them as well. Because as he was a counselor, we're counselors, we're parents. Some of us are office bearers and will be office bearers in the church. And, and the first one, I've said it before, is that he didn't listen. He didn't inquire. He sat with Job for seven days. But he never bothered to ask Job what's going on. Or why do you think these things are happening in your life? Or where are you in your heart and your experience? No, he sat there and I guess pretty early on decided that Job could only be a gross sinner because this only happened to gross sinners. And so he never inquired, he never listened, he never gave Job opportunity. Second thing, and we've touched on this before, he, he made hasty generalizations. Hasty generalizations. So, uh, in, in the first place, he, he generalized that um, all righteous men would experience the full reality of these blessings. Now, as I said before, he should have simply thought about Cain and Abel. Here, the godly man worshiping God in the proper manner is struck down right in the early days of life. He, he knew better. And then the other is that if you suffer like this, you have to be wicked. Now, I'm patient with Eliphaz because, again, they didn't have scripture. But we understand that there are more than one reason for afflictions. That's really embraced in what he says when he uses the word to discipline and, and to admonish. Now, it's true that in your trials, at times, God will be afflicting you for a particular sin. It won't be a great mystery. You prayerfully seek God in connection with what he's doing, and he will show you so that you can profit from the discipline. Now, other times and more broadly, it's not a particular sin, but it's merely this idea of he's refining us. There's much sin in us. And that sin is often rooted out by the trials and afflictions that God brings into our lives. But then, and particularly in the case of Job, although he would need the refining, and all of us would, but the primary purpose at time is for God to exalt himself in us. For God to say to Satan and the devils, look at him, look at her, look at my work of grace in their life. And to those around them, that they might marvel at the goodness and the grace of God. And the third thing that Eliphaz did wrong is he had no sympathy, no compassion. I mean, can you imagine talking to a man who's just lost all of his estate, that she'll come back and nothing will be lost. He just lost all of his children. And uh, you're promised with uh, a happy family for many generations. And you've seen death all around you and, and your servants. And uh, Eliphaz just thoughtlessly puts these things out. It's what we'll see next week in Job, but what drove him in the direction he's still going is that I can't repent of what I've not done. How in the world? And I'm not going to get back what I've lost. And so this counsel, although it was wise in many ways, fell on uh, dead ears. Well, 
But it's good counsel for you and me, you see. It's good counsel for us. For many of you suffer many different types of trials and afflictions. And all of us are going to suffer many more before uh, we die or before Christ returns. What, he's, what he's, the Holy Spirit is showing us here is that um, God wants us to submit joyfully to these trials and to rest in him and to look for his purposes as these things come to you and be able to encourage and comfort one another then in the midst of trials and afflictions. Out of your experience, not simply the experience, this is what happens, but you know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the comfort that God has brought to you, he's brought to you that you might comfort others. But also understand that these things belong to us because of Christ Jesus. A great portion of what I read a while ago of deliverances from Psalm 91. At the end of the day, Psalm 91 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of our union with Christ then that we can know that the evil's been removed and there'll be deliverance of one form or another through all the trials through which God calls us to go in this life. And if we come to the Lord's table now, what the Holy Spirit is doing is testifying to you that you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, all things work together for your good because he went through all of it. He came out of it as the victor. And he guarantees then that you too, even as you go through it, will come out the victor. But there's one serious caveat here. If you're not a Christian this morning, you have no way to take any discomfort to yourself. Every one of your trials and afflictions is a whip of God across your back, not as a kind father, but as a just judge. Every trial is to remind you of the awfulness of sin, that you then might flee that sin and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You live in your sin, regardless of what happens in your life now, it's but a precursor to the awful terrors of hell itself. But if you come to Christ, I'm not saying you'll be delivered from difficulties of your life. No, oftentimes, many of us have found they become increased. But there now are things from a loving Father who is working in your life to perfect you in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So be sure, above all things today, that you're resting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.